Hey guys, and welcome to Fika with Rice, a podcast about life hacks, inspirational life stories, routines, and keys to success. I'm your host, Frederick Van Hoon, and each week I meet some of the most incredible people in the world from self-made millionaires, best-selling authors, experts, and world-class athletes. My goal is to extract their wisdom, mindset, tools, so you can use them in your daily life, but above all, to inspire you. Let's get this Fika started. Welcome to episode 16 by Fika with Rice. This week we meet the wolf of all streets, Scott Melker. This is a fantastic fundamental class and a great episode about the basics of cryptocurrency. Have you ever wondered what cryptocurrency is? Then this is a perfect episode for you to start educating yourself on this exciting topic. A little disclaimer here, I'm not a financial advisor and I don't pretend to be one online, so we don't take any responsibility for any actions you take with your financial investments. I recommend that you consult with your own financial advisor before you commit to any financial investments. Let's get this Fika started. This is Scott's story. Let's go. Hello, Scott. Welcome to Fika with Rice. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about crypto and what it's all about. You're the wolf of all streets. And I'm sure <laughs> a lot of people in our audience are really keen to learn more about you and this conversation. So thank you very much for being here with me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really flattered. Thank you, Scott. When was the first time you heard about cryptocurrency and how did you first begin thinking about this or any of this really? Where did that interest begin? Well, I think like a lot of people, I heard about it very early, but sort of dismissed it as you know irrelevant or unimportant. Uh, so I probably heard about it the first time in 2011 or 2012 from a friend of mine. I was DJing back then. I was a DJ and a producer for about 20 years before I uh, became you know, a full-time trader, even though I was trading. And uh, I just sort of dismissed it. In fact, somebody uh, still claims they offered to pay me Bitcoin for a DJ gig back then, which would have been the best paying DJ gig in the history of all time uh, if I had uh, taken it and held it. But my real interest came late 2016, early 2017. I think like a lot of people, I think that was a time that there started, started to be at least a little bit of mainstream awareness uh, that it existed. I came in as a trader. I'd been trading other things and it was sort of this mythical world of these massive trades and you can make so much money on altcoins and all this. So I really came in not understanding what it was or why it was important, but more just to make money. And I think, you know, as I became more passionate about trading it, I obviously did my due diligence and learned about it more and slowly became much more involved and, and, and captured, I, I guess, by how important and essential it actually is an asset and the potential of it for the future. That's really cool. Like going from music, producing music, DJing. And that's why you've been to Barcelona? Yeah, I've been to Barcelona a few times, uh, both on vacation and uh, to DJ once. Yeah. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. I guess you've been to Ibiza then. Believe it or not, I've never been to Ibiza. Like in my whole life, I was supposed to go in 2001 or 2002. And again, at some point in 2010 or 2011, and it just never happened. I wasn't an EDM DJ, so that wasn't necessarily my scene. So I was only supposed to go as a, as a tourist and as, a, uh, you know, as, a, as an enthusiast, but I never actually made it. And I think by the time I was going to go again, I felt like it, it had sort of uh, been past its heyday, you know, past, past its prime. I mean, I was trying to go there in like the year 2000, 2002, when it was really this crazy scene and wasn't as commercial. Okay. Yeah. It's so easy to get there from Barcelona. So. Sure. Yeah. But okay. Cryptocurrency. Let's assume I'm 12 years old. What is cryptocurrency? 
I wish I was 12 years old. Well, you know, I try to explain it to my six-year-old, so I have a bit of experience, I guess. But uh, she says it's money that's in the computer. Um, and I think that that's a very simplified but accurate uh, description to some degree. Defining cryptocurrency, obviously, is, you know, digital money cryptographically secured. And then you go down this endless rabbit hole of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then a million other coins, which each have their own definitions. I think most people would ask, what is Bitcoin? Of course. And, you know, uh, Bitcoin is a provenly scarce, hard currency that's digital and secure and decentralized and not backed by any government or controlled by any centralized power. And that's not something a 12-year-old will necessarily understand. But you can say to a 12-year-old, listen, where do you store your money now? I don't know, like in my piggy bank or whatever. Okay, well, this is money that you can store in a computer and it's all yours and nobody else has access to. Okay. And nobody can take it away from you and nobody can control it. It's all yours. And I think that that's sort of a, a compelling case for it. I like that a lot, that explanation. So when you're Googling cryptocurrency, another word that comes up is blockchain. What's the difference of a blockchain and cryptocurrency? Right. Okay. So maybe that's not for the 12-year-old, but as the adults get older. I mean, a blockchain is a public ledger, right? So it means that every single transaction is, can, can be viewed by anyone. It's completely transparent and it cannot be hacked because it's not one big centralized server or server farm. It's you know something that's being, the transactions are being confirmed by miners and computers all around the world. And once a block is sealed, there's no opening it back up again. So you have this endless ledger of blocks that every transaction is proven and can't be hacked or exploited. Thank you, Scott. What distinguishes cryptocurrency or makes cryptocurrency valuable? Is it the rarity or what are the factors that determine that? I think it depends on the cryptocurrency. Bitcoin has really secured itself, I believe. The narrative has been sort of you know, tossed back and forth for years. But now I think that most people would point to it as a gold 2.0 or digital gold is sort of the narrative that you hear. A hard asset that's a, that's a superior store of value to any other hard asset in existence. So I think that the real value of Bitcoin itself is that it's scarce. There's only 21 million ever, probably five or six million have already been lost so that that supply is even reduced. And every four years, the supply is cut in half of new coins until they get to 21 million. So it's the only asset in the world that you have mathematical scarcity. You know exactly how many there are, you know exactly when they'll be mined, and you know exactly what percentage of those you hold. Can't say that with gold. You know, like uh, people always point to diamonds as a scarce asset. Diamonds aren't scarce. They're just held in vaults to make them seem scarce, right? So it's provably scarce. And once you, like I said, then you go beyond Bitcoin, Ethereum, you could sort of uh, equate it to investing in the internet early, an internet of value rather than an internet of information. You know, obviously we have an existing internet where we trade information back and forth freely, but imagine if you could do that with value, with money without having third parties in between, toll collectors, you know, and really unnecessary parties. I can transfer value directly to you using apps and projects built on that platform without having somebody in the middle in the same way that we transfer information or email on the internet. So, and then there's just this, like I said before, an endless, endless array of other use cases and coins. 10,000 of them last I checked or so and growing. So, Well, I mean, it seems that you were saying that there's a scarcity of Bitcoin, that it's 
which is one of the, the mainstream, the most common cryptocurrency. There's 21 million of those. A lot of them are, are lost. I read a case about a guy that lost a lot of coins on a hard drive, right? And we're looking for them in a, in a garbage. In a trash dump or something. Yeah, and he was, uh, yeah, absolutely. And there was another guy uh, not so long ago that I think, you know, he had three chances at his password and he had taken two chances and it was millions of dollars and was trying to figure out what his password could have potentially been. Yeah, it's, it's the Wild West. There's no question about that. And most of those stories you hear from people who like in the very early days had it and forgot about it. And who remembers their password from 2011 to something that's sitting on an old computer driver. So it totally makes sense. But um, yes, I would say at the end of the day, the most compelling, most compelling aspect of Bitcoin is its mathematical and provable scarcity. How do you think, I mean, a lot of, a lot of listeners, they don't know that much about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency per se, but you started to invest, you said, in and get involved for real in this in 2012. Is that correct? Or 2016? No, 2016, 17. 2016. 2012, I heard about it. I wish because I would be a lot wealthier if I had done it in 2012. And of course, I've had the, uh, had had the uh, courage to hold it, which most people did not who even were early. It's funny, you hear about all these people who bought Bitcoin in 2010, 2011, 2012, but most of them sold it long ago. Let's say we're 2026. What role do you think Bitcoin will play in our world? In five years, I think it could be a much more significant role. But that said, I view this as a, you know, as a asset that will become part of everyone's portfolio for decades to come. And five years from now is still exceptionally early. So I don't think it will have reached its full potential in five years. But listen, just this week, we saw El Salvador propose that it will become legal tender in the country. So you usually see one domino fall and others uh, fall behind it. El Salvador is particularly interesting because their currency is the US dollar, right? They don't have their own currency. So it's a more compelling use case when you realize they're going to accept Bitcoin because they view the dollar as risky and they're hedging against dollar inflation. So I think we will see a lot more countries start to define what Bitcoin is, whether that be in the same manner El Salvador did or in another manner entirely. But I think we'll have much clearer regulation coming in the follow, following years uh, and up to the next five years. I believe that uh, Bitcoin will be on the balance sheet of countless corporations, endowments, pensions. That's going to only grow the institutional involvement. And I believe that it will be a central bank asset on the balance sheet, much like gold is in a lot of places. So I think we'll just see a steady maturation of the asset and of adoption across the board. And then, of course, you go to the sort of retail and mainstream side, and we see this crazy infrastructure being built, even in the last year, PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, everybody's talking about it. So I think that um, we're in the very early days of mainstream adoption in that manner. And so I think that those platforms will become more robust. It'll be a lot easier for your average person to access it. That's always been kind of the barrier, in my opinion, is it's just like, it's intimidating. You don't want to open a wallet and save your, your keys. And your average person just wants to go on PayPal and buy it like they would anything else, right? Or go on Schwab, which they can't do right now. So I think that uh, five years from now, we'll just see a continuation of what, what's happening now, but on a much, much grander scale and at much, much higher prices. Why is it intimidating for people to buy it? Well. A paradigm shift takes generations sometimes, right? So I don't think there's just this little tipping point and all of a sudden everyone understands. There's a reason that the Warren Buffetts and Charlie Mungers and Janet Yellens and Christine Lagarde's of the world hate Bitcoin is because they were raised in the system. Their 
thinking about money is deeply ingrained. And so that generation is probably never going to get it. So it takes that generation effectively passing their wealth down to the next generation that was raised with computers and understands technology and has used you know, all of these different things to, to really make that shift, I think. So your average person, I still think, grew up in a system where you, your natural inclination, and not wrongfully necessarily, is I use a bank. I don't think about what my money is, right? Money is just it's how I transact. They don't think about central bank policy or monetary policy. They just, money is what I spend and what I save, and they're comfortable putting it in a bank. So when you say to someone, okay, this is your own money, but you have to secure it yourself. You have to be your own bank. There's no insurance. Nobody's going to protect you if you get hacked. Nobody's going to protect you if you hit the wrong button and send it to the wrong address. It's gone forever. That's very daunting, I think, for your average person. So I just don't think they want to make that jump or even, I think the, the conversation stops there or has in the past. And now that's not the case. You buy it on the cash app, you buy it on PayPal, you don't think about it. And that's it. I'm not saying that's the ideal way to handle your Bitcoin, but that's the way that most people would be comfortable with it who have not been exposed before. I could understand that. You know, I think the, the majority, the nine of 10, like, they want the convenience, so to speak. Of course. Yeah. I read the article this week. I was going to bring it up. So thank you for doing that. But El Salvador and being the first government that want to make it a legal tender, at least for Bitcoin. What do you think about the movement right now of a lot of governments trying to crack down on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but at the same time want to create their own cryptocurrency? Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting, interesting time, but it makes sense logically if you think about that. Like countries want to control the money, right? So of course, even if they view the technology as superior, and I think we all know that the entire world is going digital. That money is going digital, whether cryptocurrency existed or not. I mean, we mostly transact digitally anyways. When's the last time people, your average person used cash? But a central bank digital currency, which is what we're talking about, it's being tested around the world. China's already enacting it. The United States is even looking at it. That's like a wet dream for a central bank, right? Because cash is difficult to control the money supply when there's cash around. But if you're just digitally sending money, everything's on the ledger, Every transaction would be public. There'd be no more privacy. They want your taxes, take it out of your wallet. They want to send you stimulus, send it into your wallet, right? So they want to take the best aspects of it technologically and eliminate all of the aspects that are actually good for the individual, the privacy and the control. So it makes sense that governments that are looking at their own digital currencies are going to crack down on Bitcoin or at least try to minimize, minimize its, uh, its impact. So it, it is a really, really interesting time. But I, I, I think that more countries are going to have to look at it as a serious asset, even if it's just on the balance sheet to hedge against the inflation of their own currencies, uh, then are going to crack down and ban it. And listen, India and China, who are the two that we hear about banning Bitcoin, like that news comes out every time price drops. It's unbelievable. India and China have probably each banned Bitcoin 15 times or have reportedly banned Bitcoin 15 times since I've been in it, right? It's almost a joke. Oh, look, price went down. China's banning Bitcoin, right? It's kind of a narrative that's used every time price drops, much like the electricity debate, or it's only used by criminals or all the other nonsense that uh, surrounds uh, Bitcoin. So I think that um, all money will be digital in 10 years. They're not going to be printing, none of that. It's going to be, we're going to have digital currencies. They'll probably be built mostly on blockchain and crypto tech. Uh, technology, but they will not be Bitcoin. 
Do you they think will still be fiat currencies? You know, they will still be <laughs> the same dollar, the same yuan, just digital. Do you think there's any way for, for governments to regulate cryptocurrencies in the future or Bitcoin? I, I don't think Bitcoin can be banned. And I think that that word is sort of a misdirection, but they're absolutely all going to regulate it and it can absolutely be regulated. And what can be regulated not, is not necessarily Bitcoin itself. But the on and off ramps, I think, are what will really be regulated, the exchanges. So they can't ban Bitcoin necessarily, but they can certainly make it really difficult to get your Bitcoin into your local currency. Like if there's no off ramp and there's no way for you to go to an exchange and sell your Bitcoin into dollars or into euros or into whatever currency you're using, that is the way they're likely to regulate it. Obviously, I think we'll see. I mean, the United States the tax policy towards uh, crypto is very, very heavy handed. It's almost absurd. A lot of countries have lighter policies. I think we'll see a lot of them meeting in the middle. But either way, I think that we're just going to see a lot more countries trying to define what it is, right? I mean, the United States defines it as property. El Salvador is now saying it's legal tender. And there's a whole array of ways to approach it between those two, right? And so um, I think regulation is inevitable. It's coming. There's plenty of people who would say regulation is good if it actually protects the individual and, and helps them. And I mean... It would be a good thing if your coins were insured and you sent them to the wrong address and you actually got them back. You know, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. So there's two sides to regulation. I think the fear is dumb regulation. Regulators who don't understand the asset and just drop the hammer say bad. But I, I, I'm pretty encouraged that that's not what we're going to see in most places. Yes. You mentioned as well, Scott, that, okay, it's starting to be a joke now that every time India and China, they say something that they're going to ban cryptocurrency, like the price of Bitcoin goes down specifically. And it's been, they've been doing that for 15 times now, the last five years. What are other ways that cryptocurrency appreciates and, and depreciates? Okay, to be clear, the news comes after the drop. Okay. It never causes after, okay. the drop. Okay. It's always very conveniently, you'll see, and listen, this happens in other markets as well. Like people love to pile on when something's down and they love to pile on when something's great and get, you know, that sort of uh, irrational FOMO or fear of missing out or emotion about it in either direction. So that's not abnormal. The price drops and then everyone searches for narrative and then all the negative news seems to just pile on and pile on and pile on. And most of it's fake and it's, it's absurd, but like writers need something to write about and it's the hot topic of the moment. So India bans crypto, and then you find out six days later that actually someone was just reporting something that was a policy from two years ago, right? And then they clarify two weeks later, but it doesn't matter. You know, you know how news disseminates. People see the fake news first, and they never see the retraction. So that's sort of the way. I think that, again, I don't think that the news drives Bitcoin to any great degree in either direction. I think it comes after the move. I think that it's a free market. Obviously, there's huge players like in any market who can move it. And I don't think that's a bad thing. People say that's manipulation. Manipulation is printing money and buying bonds and stocks by your government so that stocks can never go down. It's not manipulation for someone who just happens to have more money than you to be able to move the market by buying or selling an asset. That's a free market. So I think that it's sort of an irony that people like to call Bitcoin manipulated when every other market is actually manipulated. And this one really arguably is not. There's a lot of things that drive price. The halving I talked about, which is every four years, this difficulty of mining Bitcoin increases by doubles, effectively making the supply half. 
you know, there's the uh, stock to flow model by plan B that's very popular and simple that sort of addresses that. And if you look at any chart, it's very obvious that at a certain point after that having, you start to see major price appreciation because of economics 101. If supply is cut in half and demand even remains the same, price is going to go up, right? So if demand increases, it goes down. And even if demand goes down, but not by 50%, price has to go up, right? So that's that sort of scarcity that we talked about in very basic supply and demand. So I think those underlying factors, on-chain metrics, how many people are holding Bitcoin and how much versus how many selling, who's holding and who's selling. Like We've just seen a drop from effectively 65,000 to 30,000. But if you look at any metric, the people with the old wallets that are loaded were buying at the bottom and never sold. And the people who bought in the 50 and 60,000s who had less Bitcoin panic sold and drove the price down. And obviously, that was uh, assisted by over leverage in the market, you know, liquidations, which drive price down. So I think that uh, the news is just a way to sort of wag the dog and make you look in a different direction while everything sort of remains inherently bullish underneath. And the very structure of the asset, like I said, with the having means that price should always go through these cycles and continue up. Thank you for that. that. I think that's a very good explanation. Because I think a lot of people, they read about the prices going up and down and they're confused. I mean, a lot of them, they don't have a financial background or they don't understand how the market works. Elon Musk's tweets are not what's moving the market. And it's a great narrative. It's fun. It's fun to see someone go from hero to zero to villain and, and back. I don't buy the narrative that every time the guy sells a tweet, all of a sudden the entire world makes a financial decision on whether to buy or sell. Oh an asset at that second, right? So I, more likely, it's uh, there's someone waiting and he tweets something and they go, oh, well, now people will panic. If I sell a little, we can get it going to sell a lot. I can make a lot of money buying it back lower. And that's what happens in markets like this. You know, you trigger those leverage, trigger those liquidations, people who are using 100x leverage to be long. If you just push price down one or $2,000, you're going to start triggering those liquidations. And every single one of those liquidations becomes a sell order, which pushes price down, 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 down. And if there's less buyers, the uh, price, price drops. And that's what we saw. 60,000 to 50,000 was like $10 billion in liquidations, something absurd. Oh, wow. Like three times what it had ever been before. And 40 to 30,000 was another roughly 10 billion. And 800,000 individual accounts were liquidated on leverage exchanges in that move. Oh, so wow. 800,000 people had no stop loss and were using leverage and got liquidated for their entire account on that move. That's what drives price down. You trigger one of those and it just becomes a cascade and that's how price moves so heavily. And that's the same, that's exactly what uh, you know Wall Street Bets did with GameStop in the other direction. They started uh, pushing price high enough to liquidate all of those shorts and then those shorts become, when they liquidate, they become buy orders and it just sends price skyrocketing up. Happens in every market. Why did they liquidate their Bitcoin holdings during that they're leveraged. specific time? If you're trading with leverage, so say you're using 10x leverage and your entry, just for round math, if your entry is at 40,000, now you, you're basically saying your entire position, you're getting 10 times as much. If you're doing it for $10,000, you now have $100,000 worth of Bitcoin position, but your downside is also that you get liquidated with a 10% drop because you're at 10x leverage. So if price hits 36,000, your whole account is liquidated because that's all the margin that you had. As opposed to like, if you bought it spot, like if you buy an asset, you buy a Bitcoin for $40,000 and it goes down to $1,000, you still have $1,000 worth of Bitcoin, right? 
and you still have one Bitcoin, right? If it was a $40,000 Bitcoin. So the liquidations that if it goes down to 36,000, the liquidation engine automatically closes your position, takes all of your margin, but that's a, you're closing your position that you bought becomes an automatic sell order, right? So it sells your Bitcoin, it continues price down, which then triggers other liquidations, which then sends price even further down. So, I mean, that's the simple math. It's not exactly like that, but if you're at 10X leverage, a 10% drop is gonna liquidate you. And there's people using 100X leverage, which means that a $400 drop from $40,000 would liquidate you. And Bitcoin implied volatility is a few percent every single day, right? So you're a 1% move on Bitcoin you can literally execute an order and be liquidated 12 seconds later. I mean, quite literally. So, you know, that's how it is. These exchanges, they're not going to lose their money. So they liquidate you and make sure that, uh, you know, they're, they're covered. Scott, let's say that, okay, just for all the listeners and then to ensure that they all understood what you were saying, let's say that we had a goal to get 10x of return. So what you're saying is once they reach that roof, so to speak, they liquidate their assets. Because they've hit their financial target, so to speak. Oh, no. Well, no, it's on the downside. Upside is on the downside. Upside is infinite, right? If you buy at 40,000 with 10x leverage and price goes up and never comes back down to your liquidation price, you can hold that as long as you want. Of course, you're likely paying because you're borrowing money. Leverage is borrowing money. That's what people should understand. You're like anytime you want to short in the market, you need to borrow money to sell the stock that you don't have. Right. So it's the same sort of concept. So you're paying every eight hours, you're paying depending on which side you're on. You're either paying or receiving a fee. Whichever side is more popular is paying. So, you know, and, and then uh, it continues from there. But so, yes, it's the drop that liquidates you. If you have a take profit uh, order set, it will close your position at your desired increase. But in general, you know, it's your downside that's unprotected if you're not using a stop loss. So if it goes down 10%, they, clear out your entire account to cover the margin and on to the next guy. I understand now. It's clear. Yeah. It's a very, it's a somewhat confusing concept and maybe I didn't simplify it enough, but that's the idea. No, it's okay. Thank you, Scott. Why did you get into cryptocurrency? Why is it important to you? Uh, For a lot of the reasons that I discussed. I mean, I believe that governments are irresponsible on the border of criminals, some of them, obviously. And um, I believe that, you know, central bank policy and monetary policy is designed to obviously cause inflation and the devaluing of the currency and an increase in the price of goods. And, you know, if you look at any of the numbers seriously, talk to a guy like Michael Saylor, he'll tell you that your dollar is losing 15% of its buying power every single year. So you can't save dollars. Dollars are for spending. Bitcoin is for saving. So is real estate, so is gold, so is silver. Everybody has their asset they're passionate about. I just believe that this is the best one, right? So for in the case of Bitcoin, I believe it's a store of value and it's protecting myself against inflation. And then also a hedge against that worst case scenario where the dollar hyperinflates, it looks like Venezuela or Weimar Germany. Or what. I'm not saying I believe that will happen with the dollar, but that is how every fiat currency in history basically has ended. The only way that it works is if the government devalues it, takes on debt, and continues that process until the currency completely dies, and then you erase it and make a new currency and like hope for the best. Look at the euro. I started to understand what money was and what an absolute scam it actually is when it's not pegged to anything. 
like the dollar was on the gold standard, for example. I think that that was one huge part of it. And then another huge aspect of it that I think is was originally a huge narrative and it's very is talked about very little now, obviously, is the world population is largely unbanked or underbanked. You take for, uh, for granted in Spain, I'm sure, certainly in the United States, that we all can basically access a bank account, most people. Your assets are probably secure there. Your, you know, you, your money is insured. But in most parts of the world, it's very hard for people to actually hold their money. They can't get access to a bank. So Bitcoin on their phone is probably the best bank they'll ever get or another coin. And to that end, most of the world that never got computers or never got the internet or any of those things, they got phones, right? I remember a friend of mine telling me when he was in the military in Afghanistan that, you know, there'd be huts and no running water and no electricity and there's a cell phone store and a tower. I think that it's money that people have access to outside of the purview of their governments that they can use every single day to transact and live their life, you know? And there are other stable coins play to that. Ethereum plays that and a million more coins. But at the very core, the very core, I think that governments and the structure of money do not serve most people. They serve the wealthiest few and the cronies. And, you know, it's sort of corporate socialism. Stocks keep going up, but your average person doesn't have a job and can't buy food, you know? And Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies really help with that. It's an interesting statement you're saying that because about that the most of the world do not have access to a bank, which is true, but the majority of the people do not know that. You know, if you talk to an average college student, you know, he or she wouldn't know right. that. But I mean, if you go to, to India, where most people like the way they save money is like buying gold. Yeah. And they so have imagine if phones. you could do that on your phone. And you didn't have to store that gold. And, you know, if you just memorize your private keys in your head, nobody can ever take it from you. Anyone who's been to India knows that it's probably very hard to securely store your gold unless you're very wealthy. That, that's the same concept. It's a store of value. I mean, you hear stories. My friend in Argentina said, because they have, you know, hyperinflation and major issues with their currency, that people will take whatever, if they get money into their bank account, they immediately withdraw it from the bank because it's losing its value so fast. They go on the black market, they convert it to dollars, and they go back to the same bank and put the dollars in cash into a safety deposit box. They take the money out of the bank that's secured and they use the bank as a safe, but don't deposit the money back into the bank and keep it in dollars. I mean, those kind of systems are inherently broken. And uh, you can skip all of that and just uh, get a wallet on your phone, memorize your private keys, secure them somewhere and uh, go about your life with Bitcoin and uh, ignore all of it. And you can ask anyone in Venezuela or places like that that do have hyperinflation where Bitcoin's used any, every day, how important it is and what that would look like in the future for a first world country is almost unimaginable. Yes. Let's talk about investments then a bit, Scott, because you're an investor as well. You're not only a trader. Why should an average 25-year-old invest in cryptocurrency and how can one get started? I don't think anyone should be a trader, to be clear. Like, and, and, and no matter how much I trade, I'm an investor first. And by far, the largest part of my portfolio is investing. Even the best traders, I think, probably shouldn't trade with more than 15% of their portfolio because traders just, you lose. You don't do as well as the market 95% of the time. That's just, you know, every study has sort of established that. If you're a 25-year-old, are you asking why you should buy Bitcoin and why you should invest in cryptocurrency? Because what else are you going to buy? 
I mean, I've asked this question to so many people on my podcast, like brilliant people, billionaires, whatever. If you were poor and I gave you a million dollars right now, what would you buy? And all of them are like, I have no idea. I'm not going to buy stocks because they're seemingly exceptionally overvalued. I'm not going to buy gold because I don't have a big enough safe and I don't feel like burying it in my backyard. I, maybe I'll buy some real estate. Of course, everyone's answer is first, I'd put away six months of expenses that I have my emergency account in dollars. But most of them now say I would probably buy Bitcoin. Some of them said they would spend all of it on Bitcoin, you know, because um, it really is a superior version of all of those things. And it's a combination of all of those things. Like try actually, you can transact in Bitcoin, try transacting in gold. Try taking gold down to the store and trying to figure out how to pay for something, right? It's just not going to happen. It's, it's not divisible. I would say that if you're talking about why, it's because it will help you store your value that's going to be lost. If you're asking how, I would say, don't try to be a trader. Figure out a responsible amount that you want to get into it and that you ideally don't want to touch for decades and dollar cost average, like anything else. Just I'm going to buy $100 worth of Bitcoin every Monday at 9 a.m. regardless of the price. And I'm not going to touch it until I'm 50. That's the ideal way to invest in anything. So, you know, and the earlier you start, the, the numbers with Compound, it's incredible, especially if you can do it on an interest-bearing platform. The amount of money you'll make accumulating Bitcoin with interest is astounding. Thank you for, for that. I think a lot of listeners, they might also be interested in, in knowing like, okay, there's so much information about there. I want to learn more about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and I want to get into this and I want to invest $100 every Monday. Like, it doesn't matter the price. There's a lot of information out there. You were saying earlier, it's the wild, wild west there. How would you suggest that they how they choose a reliable source of information when it comes to a platform? Well, I mean, at this point, I think it's very clear which are the biggest and most reliable platforms. And so I think it depends on where you are in the world. It's a very different uh, answer for an American because we're highly regulated. We don't have access to a lot of platforms. There's, people use different ones in Asia and, and in Europe. So personally, my favorite is Voyager, but it's only in the United States. So that's, you know, I, I use Voyager. They offer up to 10% on stable coins, interest compounding monthly, AP, uh, yearly, but compounds monthly, 6.5% on your Bitcoin if you store it there. And, you know, you get interest paid every month. It's incredible. There's a lot. BlockFi was a very popular one in the United States as well. I think if you're outside the United States, Nexo is very popular. Celsius is very popular. I'm talking about if you're looking for places to, you know, dollar cost average and hold to gain interest. These are sort of like Bitcoin banks. You know, they're not really banks, but they're the closest thing. Amber is an incredible one um, in, in Asia that um, has been sort of pegged as the BlockFi of, of Asia. And I know that they're expanding to have tremendous services. But there's a million of them. Listen, the biggest, I'm not saying the biggest ones are necessarily the best, but they're, the, I think they're the most secure. And the platforms that have um, experienced the incredible volatility and not had issues with their customers' money are probably the ones that you want to look at first. Um, and I think the ones I listed are probably the, the biggest names in the game. Thank you for that, Scott. We have listeners all around the world. So those in Asia, the European ones are good too, and those in North America as well. So thank you. Very good. Right. When you invest in cryptocurrency, because you're an investor, you said, uh, first and foremost, besides Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, like 
what should one really look for when when you're buying a cryptocurrency? First of all, I think cryptocurrency should be a part of your overall portfolio. I mean, it's changing now and I don't rebalance in the way I used to because I believe in it a lot more. And also like, I just don't feel like buying stocks at this point, but like, I still have my normal investment accounts that I've had for 20 years that are dollar cost averaging into the stock market and things like that. You know, and I think that everybody should also be doing those things just to be well-rounded, you know, responsible investor. But I mean, what you look for, once you understand Bitcoin, I think the next step is to look at Ethereum. And once you have a comprehensive understanding of Ethereum, and I think both of those are incredible investments and the safest, then, like I said, there's sort of a, once you become passionate about it, I think then you start looking at all of these other assets and platforms and you figure out the ones that you're passionate about are sort of like jive with your own mentality. And then you can start uh, approaching the same in the same manner as, as investments. Like I said, there's thousands of them. It's very hard. I say you just start very slow and find the ones you like and sort of stick to them for a while. And then maybe if you make some money or have more access to capital, you go further down the risk curve and allocate a smaller amount to the ones that are obviously smaller market cap. The lower the market cap, the riskier it is, right? So it's true. I think you said earlier now in our conversation, were the 10,000 coins like different types of coins? Yeah, I think, the, I mean, it's it, there's so many, but I think there's roughly, there might be more, but uh, 10,000 different coins or something. It's crazy. Yeah, but well, I mean, so so many of them are complete and utter jokes. But uh, yeah, yes, um, you said so. When when someone invests in cryptocurrency, it should be for a long term yeah. perspective, so to speak. What's long term? How is that defined to you, Scott? Is it ten years, five years, twenty? I mean, I view Bitcoin as trust for my kids. So for me, it's after I'm dead. I believe in Bitcoin enough that uh, I would never sell most of it and hope to hand it off to my children. That's how I view investments, right? A retirement. I don't think you should, it's the, I mean, Warren Buffett's always said it, but like, if you, you know, if you, if you're not willing to hold it for 10 years, uh, don't even think about buying it. And I, I think for an investor, that's a wise generally uh, sort of approach. So, I mean, for Bitcoin, I think a very long, long time Ethereum as well. Some of them, obviously you'll know much faster than one or two years, whether they're, viable investments or not and make the decision sort of down the road. But with cryptocurrency, I view it just like a retirement account. Put it away. Don't think about it. No need to check the price every day. Shouldn't matter. You should be worried about the price in 20 years, not in 20 months or 20 minutes for most people in this space. Yeah. Scott, there's a lot of like haters against cryptocurrency. What's the most common misconception about crypto or Bitcoin or cryptocurrency per se? Well, we listed a couple before, only, yeah. used by, only used by criminals, which is completely false. Less than 1% of the transactions on the Bitcoin network are used by criminals and like $1.7 trillion a year are used by criminals. It's like the dollar is obviously the asset used by criminals. Environmental concerns, which comes around consistently, but we know that 70% of miners use renewables, 40 to 50% use entirely renewables. And it's kind of funny because the amount of electricity something uses is not what's relevant. Like what do Elon Musk's cars run on? Electricity, right? So why are we talking about the amount of electricity that Bitcoin uses and not the source of that electricity? Um, and the source of the electricity is largely renewables. It's moving into that direction. And a lot of it, especially like in Texas and Canada, Canada that where people are moving is wasted energy you know, the runoff from, from uh, mining and things like that, like actual but oil mining, you know, rigs and stuff. 
So the energy debate being a huge one, criminals being a huge one. And then it's the endless misconceptions about government views on it that we talked about before. It's banned. It's not banned. It's regulated. It's not regulated. It's just, a you know, I think it's sort of this whatever. But and then, of course, like, you know, there's just like I said, older people who just think the entire thing is a Ponzi scheme, you know, and it's just not. It's just I think that a lot of that negativity comes from either a misunderstanding or because there's, it's a threat to the systems that have created wealth in the past. And so, of course, the goal is to tear it down. Yes. Okay. Scott, earlier you said you wished to, you were 12, but what, let's say that you were able to meet your 20-year-old self. What would you tell him? I mean, literally everything I thought I knew or did when I was 20 was wrong. So uh, every, literally everything. And I think that that's, it's funny because I often interact with younger audiences I'm 44 years old. And I always joke that like the people are so passionate about things in their 20s. And I joke that most of you won't care about those things at all by the time you're in your 40s, you know, because it's just you haven't you haven't developed accurate worldview. You just don't have enough experience, I think, in your 20s for most people. But I would tell myself for sure to start investing. I mean, I just didn't. You know, and every time I tried, I would like put some money away and I'd be like, I want to go on a trip and I would pull it all out and I would go on a trip, you know. So I was very, very behind as far as compounding, you know, wealth and interest. And like I said earlier, if you start at 25 versus 35, you make multiples more on your money. It's incredible how important it is to start early, but with money that you're literally not going to touch for most of your life, even if it's 10 bucks, your $10 can become hundreds of dollars. If you leave it long enough, obviously. So I, I would tell myself to just slowly invest, you know, buy one less drink or one less cup of coffee or one less meal and put that money into the market and, and put it to work. I think it'd be way ahead of the curve. And the other thing I would tell my 20-year-old self is you don't know shit about anything. So keep an open mind and try to learn more as opposed to thinking that you know everything and that you've established your views because you just haven't. And buy Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin. I couldn't have bought Bitcoin when I was 20 because it was like 1996, but I would say buy Bitcoin now. Scott, so I'm the co-founder as well as one of the biggest internship programs for university students around the world. Have you ever done an internship? I had a lot of crappy jobs that could probably be uh, viewed as internships. In college, I had mentors. You know, I had jobs that were more, more sort of like mentorships but I've never done a proper unpaid internship, I don't think. Okay. I was just curious. <laughs> I think but... they're amazing though. I, I think it's an amazing thing. And I've seen people just do incredibly well. You know, I, I was at the University of Pennsylvania in the 90s. So a lot of people's summer jobs were internships at banks. And those people all became multimillionaires very fast after college because they worked at Morgan Stanley when they were 19 and got a job there when they were 22. And, you know, that's sort of following the path. What's the, the most valuable lesson that you learned from one of your mentors at one of the jobs that you had? Well, certainly uh, for trading, I think emotional control and risk management. And th that's probably been the most valuable thing I've ever learned is that to quickly accept a loss without emotion and to generally um, take emotion out of my financial decisions. I think that's been the most compelling lesson I've ever learned and the one that I try to teach other people. 
because it's emotions that destroys every plan. And that goes well beyond financial markets, but uh, I think that uh, it starts there. You know, If you're trading and you have a stop loss and you had an idea and you know exactly where you want to take profit and you execute that trade, you should be able to step away and not touch it again. But what everybody else does is they either sell too early or their stop loss is about to hit and they panic and they move it down and they lose more money. And when you lose your plan and you lose the math behind how much of a loss you can accept on a given trade is how you blow up every single account and end up broke. And so I think that, um, you know, that's a very specific to financial markets lesson, but in general, emotional control of decisions and making good decisions with a plan and allowing them to allowing them to play out is the most valuable lesson I've probably ever learned. Thank you for sharing that with myself and the audience, Scott. The last question that I have, and it's it's a very common question to ask everyone on our show, is our reading habits. You have a lot of books, or it's CDs in or DVDs in your back, right? Both. So th- those are those are records from my. Oh, records, okay. Yeah, those are so I'm really old, but um, yeah, I mean, so I eventually made the move from books to Kindle because I could only uh, move so many books and records around every time I moved and slowly they just minimized. And I mean, who wants to hold a book, I guess, anymore? I do love the feeling, but it's a lot easier to read on a Kindle. Generally, um, these days, I'm a avid reader. Uh, you know, I, I like to read fiction. I mean, I was always sort of like a Lord of the Rings nerd. I still love fantasy and stuff like that. But any fiction I like to read and generally that's like what I'll do sort of before bed or in my free time. And then nonfiction, I generally listen because like, uh, so I'll be reading one book that's fiction and listening to another book that's uh, nonfiction only because like in the car, that's the best time for it for me. I drop the kids off and I have 20 minute drive home or something. And so I throw it on. And usually that's these days, most of the nonfiction that I consume is uh, market related, Bitcoin related. The last two uh, books that I listened to, I'd listened to before. So they're repeat sapiens. I just listened to again and uh, Jeff Booth, the price of tomorrow or whatever it's exactly called. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I read something every day, you know, and I usually listen to something every day. And that's sort of the way that I approach it. I love sapiens. It took me many months to read it, but like I would read, I was like reading two pages and I had to take a few minutes to digest it. That's why, uh, that's why I read it in the past. And now I just listen to it again, just because I need a refresh. And like, if you want someone to have a, at least a superficial understanding of what a farce monetary systems are, have them read chapter, it's like 16 or something of Sapiens about money. It goes into it deeper, but there's a, obviously a full chapter sort of on the history of money. And obviously, I mean, the idea of Sapiens in general is that not just money, but everything in our lives is a construct. I mean, everything is a fantasy, everything is a myth, and everything that we believe is only a function of other people sharing in that belief, right? It doesn't make it true. It just means we all believe it. And money is, an, is a perfect example of that. And that's why you got to love Bitcoin because it's math. It's not theoretical belief. You're a big fan of Bitcoin, Scott. You know, listen, I, and it took me a long time. But uh, I'm a huge fan of it. And I really believe that it can change every person's life at any end of the spectrum. Even if you only own $100, even if, or if you're a billionaire and you know that you're you know, going to get some of your wealth inflated away and you want to put 1% in, 
And if you're in Venezuela and you need, you can't transact in the local currency and you need a way to survive, it, it really works for everybody in every situation in some way, because everybody needs a way to store value. Everybody needs a way to hedge against inflation and everybody needs to protect themselves from their governments. Thank you for sharing that, Scott. Where can people find you to learn more about you and where, they, where can they go to say hello to you on social media? And I'm always accessible on Twitter. It's the only social media I use. And I use social media sparingly, find it to be a massive distraction and a net negative in uh, my life, certainly in most people's. But uh, Twitter is where I generally interact with people at Scott Melker, S-C-O-T-T-M-E-L-K-E-R. I mean, it's kind of funny because I'm officially, I guess, a social media influencer. Some people would call me, but I despise social media. So. Tell me more about that, Scott. Why is that? I don't know how you're in your 30s. So you definitely at least were raised a bit in a world before social media and technology. But uh, and listen, it's terrible because I'll sound like my parents or any generation before about any technology. I remember very fondly a world where I was in the moment all the time, as opposed to consumed with what was happening in my phone or with people somewhere else. In college, we didn't have phones make a plan in advance. And if you didn't show up on time, you got left behind and you never, you know, there was no way to contact us and say, Hey, are you there? But you know, when, when I went out with my friends, I went out with my friends. I didn't go out with my phone and all of my theoretical friends, you know, and I find it very easy to get distracted by something that's not important by endlessly scrolling through a feed of things that just don't matter. And, and I feel like Younger generations are just missing out on the actual experiences they're in. It's my feeling that everybody is distracted all the time by you know what they're missing instead of enjoying what they have or what they're doing at that moment. I find it very challenging, even myself, and I grew up without it. So I have to do things like I have a policy that I won't bring my phone into my bedroom. So like when I'm when I'm going into my room to either read a book or watch TV or whatever, my phone stays charging in another room and I can't check it because I don't want to be distracted. If I go out to dinner, the phone, you know, uh, goes away, you know, or I'll leave it at home or, or things like that. I just find social media to be very distracting. And I, and I feel like we're wasting our lives away, consumed with things that have absolutely no real meaning. I like that. I resonate a lot with that, Scott. We all do. Yeah, it's, a, I, it's provenly addictive. I mean, looking at a screen is like a drug, you know, and it's something that is very hard to fight. And even when you step away with it, you feel its pull. It's right? true. It's something in your brain, you know, you're like, oh, I, I should be checking this, you know. And when you but, add in like trading or investing in a market that never closes, it's a huge, really, it's, it's, it's exhausting. Bitcoin's 24 7, 365. So even if you were just a stock trader, you could put your phone away for the entire weekend and not miss anything. If you're a Bitcoin trader, investor, and you're really consumed with price action, the price could be down 50% when you wake up on Monday and check your phone again, you know? So the combination of that and social media, I find to be very challenging for people. So I used to respond to every Twitter comment and whatever, and my account just got too big to be able to do that. And once that got to the point where it's just like thousands of comments an hour. I just try to like not read it so much negativity as well. Also, you know, if you, if you get to a certain point and for anyone, like, you know, all you had to look is the U S election and read Facebook and everything was negativity, right? Everything was an attack on somebody mostly based in opinion and not in fact, it's very hard. I, I find social media media just to be a, a massive net 
negative. I think it's very valuable for finding old friends, communicating with people that really matter. But I think it's a complete waste to be following a bunch of celebrities and wishing you had what they had or checking out clothes endlessly or cars. And I think it just really breeds a, a mentality of being unsatisfied with your life because the things you're seeing on social media are better in your perception than what you have. And most of those people are faking it. That's the thing. So I, don't, I just don't think people have the, uh, an accurate perception of the world. Everybody has this perception of what everyone wants the world to think of them. And it's just not real, you know? And so I just, it's too much for me. And so I've really opted out over the past few years besides Twitter, which for me is, you know, where I can evangelize for Bitcoin and I, and I feel like I can help people. And that's the reason that I stick around, but certainly not for personal gratification at this point. I find it to be a very difficult platform and all social media to be very difficult to be consumed with all the time. Scott, I, I resonate so much with you. Thank you for opening up on that. I haven't used social media either. I just started my Instagram account earlier this year. I have 300 followers or something. But nice. I mean, I need to but have that's it. Better. But that's better because those are probably 300 actual people in your lives, or at least half of them, right? Some friend yeah. you had somewhere. And it's when it spirals out beyond that. And you know those people, so you know if they're faking it. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, <laughs> that so, true. Um, and those are the people who will call you on it if you try to fake it. You know, um, I think so. I think so. I just but think at least, that, uh, yeah, I think that social media is largely a facade for people to put a fake or best face forward and doesn't really describe what real life is like. And it just makes people jealous and unsatisfied. And people should be happy with what they have. Doesn't mean you shouldn't strive for more, but like I should be enjoying playing with cars with my two-year-old and not looking at my phone while my two-year-old plays with cars in front of yeah. me. And I struggle with that a lot. And I think everyone does. You mentioned your children now. What's, if it's one life lesson that you would like, that you could pass on to them, what's the most valuable one that you would give them or that you, you wish that they would remember? Do whatever makes you happy and forget what anyone else tells you about it. I mean, really, like at the end of the day, I think when you have kids, you just realize that like most of the things that you cared about in your life are meaningless. Most of the things that have consumed you just don't matter as much as being in good mental health and doing what makes you happy. And I'm not saying that that means don't get a job or like travel around the world the rest of your life and live off of my earnings or anything like that. I want my children to be motivated and to do well. But, you know, I've always, there was a TED talk. It was a kid. It was like a 10-year-old gave a TED talk. And it resonated with me so much because he said, you know, somebody asked him when he was a kid what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said, I want to be happy. And the person said, I don't think you understood the question. And there's a famous quote and then says, I don't think you understand life. But this kid had that, like a very similar sort of um, response. He said, I want to be happy. And they were like, well, what job? I don't know. I'm 10. How do I know what I want to be or what I want to do, you know? And I, I think um, I just want my kids to be happy with whatever they choose. And I want them to be kind and help others to be the same. And beyond that, I think everything will work itself out, hopefully. Thank you, Scott. I, I loved how we ended this chat with that. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the, on the show, Scott. I learned a lot and I'm sure our audience learned a lot too. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Fika with Rice. I hope you enjoyed the show. 
Who do you want to have on our show? Let us know by sending me an email at frederick at absoluteinternship.com. And before you go, if you like this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube or Spotify to get to listen to more inspirational stories and life hacks. We really appreciate it. See you next time and much gratitude for listening.